I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And welcome to Pilot Club. Drew, how's it going, mate? Oh, I'm uh, I'm excited to be here. How's how's your week been? Any highlights, lowlights, middle it's lights? A, green lights. Green lights. <laughs> so, w- w- green lights and red lights has ended our lexicon lately due to an autobiography you've read. Talk us through it. Matthew McConaughey's autobiography, Green yep. Lights. Uh, great read. Yep. A bit of a tortured metaphor. Yep. But. Uh, I think it's I think it's true. Maybe true to the person, the persona. So what is what is the metaphor? Green lights are good life decisions. Bad lights are bad life decisions. Or well, red lights are bad life decisions. I think really it's as simple as a green light being a smooth passage. Okay. In his life, and a red light being an obstacle. So it's like I because I I came across a copy day and I was just flipping through it and there were lines like uh, so I bought my first car. Green, green light. <laughs> green light. So it's lights plural. Is it lights plural? I didn't get the role. Red light. So, so is, it, is it like a traffic light thing? Is oh, it's a metaphor? traffic light thing, Okay, yeah. so traffic light. Yeah. So is it green light plural or green? Or, or if something good happens, it's a green light, but the book is about a whole series of green lights. For sure. That's the idea. Okay. For sure. Maybe well, the, we, it's about the McConaughey sense. Maybe we should start using that on the podcast, like a thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> green, green lights. Light. <laughs> Red light. So speaking of light... And fireflies, Ooh, which create light. What a segue. You're a pro. Say, I've got to say, I was in the United States a couple of years ago and I saw fireflies the first time. Have you ever seen them? I, they're amazing. They're incredible. I know. I, We're really look, missing out. Our insect kingdom is really deprived for their not being here. I thought it? I knew what bioluminescence was. I thought <laughs> I knew what it was. They look, they look like something from a Pixar movie. Yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. They do not They do not sell their name short at all. I know. I was I was entranced. Look, and look, the show into it, it's not... It's not explicitly about fireflies Ooh. not directly it's like mcconaughey's autobiography it's metaphorical metaphorical exactly <laughs> so firefly lane talk us through it is it green light or red light <laughs> well we'll we'll determine that at the end so or is it a combination of lights Ooh, orange yeah, nice. <laughs> so firefly lane is has got quite a bit of a high profile recently it's been on number one in the netflix charts mm. at least in australia mm. for the last couple of weeks it's so slamming it it is it's, it is it's, it's really found an audience yes, absolutely and i suppose it's it's an intriguing show with an intriguing premise it's an american drama mm-hmm. streaming on netflix as we said uh created by maggie friedman mm-hmm. it was created for netflix although at times it feels like it was created for the life the Hallmark Channel or well, look, uh, Lifetime and then maybe later transferred to Netflix. I was quite surprised that its genesis was Netflix. It definitely, not. it definitely feels like it feels like Netflix has been setting out to corner the basic market. Yes. So I mean, <laughs> if and especially Hallmark and Lifetime content. So yes. the rise of Christmas films, the rise of Netflix Christmas films. True. And this is very reminiscent of. Um, this is very reminiscent of. Uh, Hallmark series like Chesapeake oh. Bay and you almost had Cedar a red Cove. light there, Billy. Yeah, in your recollection, <laughs> Chesapeake Bay and uh, Chesapeake Shores and Cedar Cove, which is a big. I mean, well, I, Chesapeake Shores is is a, a a soapy melodrama, particularly close to your heart. Yes, I I, I love both of them. Look, in some ways, <laughs> I think we might we might don't sell yourself short, man. I think it'd be fair to say that you're one of the leading critical voices on the uh, on the Chesapeake Bay uh, critical discourse. Chesapeake Shores, yeah, Ch- Chesapeake I, Shores. I, I, I I am I am a stand. And look. We'll come back to that because I think, anyway, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's going for Hallmark slash... It's, it's really a hostile takeover of the Hallmark channel. Yeah, it's yeah, it's exactly. an aggressive play Absolutely. for this particular market. Yep. It has a very Hallmark aesthetic, yep. which you might describe as the Vaseline smeared on the camera look. Absolutely, especially <laughs> during the flashbacks. Yeah. So talk us through the, the plot. So, so the plot is based on two uh, women who befriended each other when they were quite young mm. and moved through the different key stages of their lives, yep. including a, a, a troubled adolescence and then a 
and basically what they're uh, they're currently in middle age, so yeah. really from their teens to their to their now forties. Um, so the two main characters are played by Catherine Heigl, who's yeah. also the executive producer of this, who plays. Tully Hart, <laughs> or Tallulah Hart. Such a Tully. Um, yes. <laughs> oh, is, is Tully short for Tallulah? Uh, it is. Oh, I never knew did that. You, I didn't know that. Did you uh, sleepwalk during that scene where she was talking about uh, the genesis of her name and her on-screen I, persona? <laughs> I have literally no memory of that scene. <laughs> that was during the famous, I went to the fridge scene. Right. I, <laughs> I drifted off quite a bit during this pilot, I'll be honest with you. So she's she plays a famous host of a daytime talk show uh-huh. called Wonderfully the Girlfriend Now. Yep. <laughs> and I, mean, I feel uh, like all the ingredients were here for me, but just none of it came together. I'm gonna I'm gonna foreshadow that none of it came together for me. It was batter that didn't rise to a cake. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it was. Um, yeah. So she plays. She plays. Well, in some ways, they're they're friends who are on convergent paths mm. at different times, mm. but then now their paths start divert start diverging. Or sorry, start converging. I should say on middle age. Actually, just, let, let's rewind. Let's do that. Over. <laughs> the, do that the very, the very inverse of what I just yes, said. Yes. Uh, so she plays. She's she's famous. She sought fame and fortune. She's achieved that. Uh. But there's a hole. There's an empty hole mm. in her heart, Billy. Mm. Uh, she's got no family. Uh, yeah, she. <laughs> she's single. <laughs> Although she does have passions. She does have passions. And this is a passion particularly true to my heart. Krispy Kremes after yeah. midnight. Yeah, so I think that that that's probably the high point of the pilot. Um, yeah, what what did you think of it as a show? Oh well, uh, I'll just I'll just quickly finish. So her, she, okay. her friend right. is played by uh, Sarah Sarah Chalk, the uh, actress Sarah Chalk, as Kate Kate uh, Malake or Malaki, I, I should say, I, her I best friends. I, since I, they were fourteen. I can't do Sarah Chalk's shtick. I just it's it's too much for me. Really? I, okay. Well, just the air of constant befuddlement. It's just, it's so interesting. Unknown. Interesting. I feel like both of you. You feel like you've got a familiarity with uh, Sarah Chalk's work. Well, she's in Scrubs. Ah. She exudes, okay. I think she exudes gotcha. Scrubs. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. This, so, I feel like this show <laughs> to kind of melodrama is like Scrubs to comedy. Right. It's like, it's really basic, but it, it's not contentious to be basic. You know, like a show like Chesapeake Shores or Cedar Cove, not to keep plugging my favorite Hallmark shows, like they revel in being basic and they turn basic into an art form and they're very beautiful in their basicality. Whereas this is a show, I think it's like Scrubs in that like, it is really basic and it's really like the lowest common denominator stuff. It doesn't even allow you to enjoy it on those terms. Like it's full of, it's full of like, like, yeah. Twisting the knife. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, I didn't realize I had so many feelings about Firefly Lane. I mean, I just, I thought when the Krispy Kreme scene happened, you'd be like, that's condescending. No, no, I I, I was joking. I'm joking. (laughs) It's not a a personal part. I know you're a a fan. You're not, you're not in on the donut. I'm not a huge donut fan. Maybe, maybe your tolerance for this show partly (laughs) depends on your, your, appreciation of you the think, donut you think the donut formed. was the point of entry yes I, I guess like I just and I, perhaps the donut is a metaphor I get for these characters in a lot converging and diverging endlessly yeah <laughs> well they've got it all yeah superficially Converge, but, yeah. but at the centre there's at a the hole at the centre yeah yeah it's yeah. sweet um, <laughs> yeah I just kind of like you know I'm a, I'm a big fan of the of basic TV formats mm. I find them really comforting but mm. what I don't like is meta basic so like I think meta basic is also something like meta basic that sounds like a scientific yeah. <laughs> I think I think you know something like modern family which is like it's not content just to follow 
the inherently basic cues of a sitcom. It's got to continually remind you that it's more than that. Like it, oh, wow. I, feel like, I feel like this series was like... Maybe I'm just not fully versed in basic television because I feel like to I me, this, to... this was basic, basic. Well, I guess here's a couple of things I think that made it that made it meta-basic. Like, I think the flashback structure, the really tortuous flashback structure. So, like, I mean, it really bogs down a pilot to have, <laughs> like, to have three competing flashlines. There were two sets of flashbacks. Yeah. So I think that's the kind of quality television aspiration. And I have to say that the flashbacks were the weakest part of this they show. They were really By weak. a country mile. And yeah, and they are set along one single country mile as well. Yes. Like, I also just thought that the kind of charisma on display here, it was aiming for a kind of charismatic panache that goes beyond basic television, right? And I just thought that the act, these two actresses, I mean, I find their range so limited, especially Jared Sarah Chalkman. I just got so sick of the befuddlement shtick. I mean, what is she befuddled about? Like, she had just this constant kind of put upon well, like, persona. Her her divorce and her yeah, life sure. falling apart. But like, and part of me was like her, the fact she's unemployed. But especially and... the befuddled mother trope. I'm like, you live in a giant, ginormous house. You've got an SUV. <laughs> you've only got one kid. Like all this stuff about her being like frazzled and you know bad looking and it's like you're thin, you're good looking. It just there was just. It's just something okay. so inane about, oh, I'm such a befuddled kind of helpless, you know, mother who's so ugly. No, you're not. You're thin. Like, who's so... I, 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 I just felt like it was like... It reminded me of This Is 40. Like, just get some perspective. You know the Judd Apatow yes, film? Yes, yes. It's like just like people, like, I don't know, wealthy, white, middle-class people whining in a befuddled way about their lives. Right, right. I, I, Interestingly, I, yeah. I actually thought Sarah Chalk was the highlight of this. Oh, no. I was in on no, Chalk. No, I like the Chalk energy. No, no, no. <laughs> That's her shtick, man. Just the constant, like, oh, little old me? Oh, I... Oh. Perhaps, perhaps because I didn't actually know where she was from, and I not that that au fait with Scrubs. Yeah, but I, I actually I, found her a bit of a okay. bit of a warm centre in this particular yeah. particular story. I, I found Catherine Heigl's character a bit more icy, but perhaps that was the yeah, the self presentation. If of this. I had to, yeah, of the two, I thought Heigl was actually the stronger. I just just there was something so shticky about Sarah oh, Chalk. It was just like at every possible moment, it was like interesting. Oh, I'm so discombobulated. It was what, it, why it was funny in the in the show. This was a show, a show. Almost as almost soon as it started, I was like, I'm out. Yep. And then it started getting a little better, and I started thinking, well, maybe you you'll warm me up. And then a couple of times, I was like, I oh, know I'm out again. But then no. then. As they, they had the little high school reunion, I, I started getting like getting into it. And I won't say I won't say I was completely warmed up, but I, I kind of got the appeal Look, by the end. I thought I thought it kind of it had a good ending. So, you know, it has an unusual ending in that, you know, we spoiler, spoiler alert, that you know, the whole thing is about this apparently idyllic friendship and it turns out that, you know, that that Sarah Chalk's husband has been having an affair or has had an affair with Catherine Heigl. I thought that was a good ending. And I thought that it was intriguing for seasons to come. But look you know, in a way, I found it. I found it kind of watchable. I just, you know, like you know, take a show about like middle-aged women. I thought a show like Dead to Me or a show like Mrs. Fletcher was like so much more sympathetic and mm. interested and curious and engaging. I but just, they were trying to do different things. They were occupying their own lanes. I mean, this you can't say this is occupying the same yeah, lane or as show, Mrs. Or Fletcher. A show, or a show like like Cedar Cove or Chesapeake Shores, <laughs> both of which are about middle-aged femininity as well. I just thought this was like a really awkward combination of like the most basic elements of a kind of yeah of a of a hallmark movie but with this 
kind of quality television affectation that just made that felt really pretentious because it was okay. so half baked. Well, I thought the quality television stuff was so superficial. I mean, it was it was almost beat by beat. It was cliche after cliche. I mean, you mm. know, the the opening montage, for example, you know, wind, you know, blowing through the trees, mm. you know, autumn leaves scuttling around on the ground, a, a teenage girl crying on a park bench. Yeah. I mean, it was all just yeah, drawn sure. straight from a kind of, you know stock tropes of your kind of hallmark sure. channel programming you know it was for me at least it didn't have any particular particular well, pretension I, to say anything more than or to be anything more than it actually was well i think those two things i've mentioned so i think the convoluted flashback structure you wouldn't find that in a kind of life in a hallmark series um and i also think you know hallmark series they tend to have very placid characterization and very serene characterization so there are conflicts no doubt but there's kind of there's a there's a serenity that overlays it all. Whereas I thought this was going for a kind of spikiness, yes, like a spikiness, a spikiness when it came to the two spiky, characters. Yeah. That was very, you know, very quality television in its kind of aspirations, and just yeah. kind of came off as a bit half-hearted and half-baked. I mean, I think there's also something too about the way, like a quirkiness. Like I thought this, was, this had a kind of aspiration to kind of quirkiness at times that I don't associate with. The, the kind of lifetime or hallmark mode. I think the quirkiness though was so like so laboured that yeah. it was hilarious. It was it was yeah. for example there's this <laughs> there's a scene and not to not to harp on the point the donut connection. Yep. But there's a, there's an absolutely hilarious scene where uh, the Catherine Heigl character is has been or has seduced or has been mm-hmm. seduced by a much younger man and. He he says, "Oh, can we can we do dinner mm. or can we get dessert now?" Mm. And she and she says something along the lines of, "The only thing I like after midnight is a warm, fresh batch of Krispy Kreme donuts." Yeah. <laughs> really like laboured innuendo. And and that guy was interesting, right? Because something that you do see in quite, you know quite a lot of hallmark series and movies is a kind of youth phobia or an anxiety about younger people and the younger generation. I think so, this was actually flipped. In some ways, this was... <laughs> well, yes, but I think, you know, I think that the appeal of this guy to her was partly that he was kind of old at heart. He was old in spirit. So although he's 29, like, he's already divorced. He's only slept with four people. Like, he's presented as kind of old-fashioned. He's presented as kind of an exception to the rule. Whereas the young women in the show are kind of uniformly idiotic. Mm. So, I mean, I think that's... I mean, Cedar Cove has some some really intense, like... Youth hating, youth hating subplots. I felt this was there was something about that that was very true to that kind of model. Mm. I, I just, I just kind of felt like, yeah. I mean, like, well, I've got some questions for the, you. Isn't it the watchability was offset by the, the constant like neurotic ticks and the constant charismatic beats? Just kind of took me out of just settling into it, and I just found I found okay. both. I mean, just it's, it's kind of it was like zany. It was like twee. So just just constantly. I know it was basic, but you know, speaking French to each other in the cafe, waving <laughs> but, goodbye but with again, oven mitts. It was so so basic. The French. It was just yeah. oh, oui oui. I'll pour a little but, bit of champagne. Uh, yeah, I can see it was kind of like I, camp enjoyment. Yeah, to me at least, this was this was good bad. It was camp. Yeah, I, I found it hilariously yeah. watchable, and I've got a couple of questions okay. for you based on this. Um, so firstly, was this written by an algorithm? That's how it feels, doesn't it? I mean, it feels it feels like it's yeah, it's that kind of Netflix, Netflix appropriating basic television. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because for a long time, the Netflix brand was quality, 
Whereas it just seems like recently, it's it's it's, it's, it's definitely a, found its niche. Yes, absolutely. It's realised it's it. Netflix has gone real post quality with some of it, some of its offerings. And I wonder if like there's something about Netflix. It's like it revives or remediates daytime television. So this this mm. stuff all feels like daytime television or soap. I don't think it's as good as soap, but it, it feels like that. And there's mm. something. This is Netflix television to be watched during the day. That's true. Well, it's I think a lot of, of people, the modern form of cord cutting is actually just cutting the plug yep. to your commercial free to air TV. Yep. So instead, all you've got is just streaming. Exactly. So I agree. I think there's definitely a space where streaming TV is occupying that daytime television space. Because Netflix is always a good, like, a good call. it was always event television or appointment television. It was very much nighttime television, whereas this is this is stuff that's designed to be binged and watched during yeah. the daytime hours. Another um, question. Yeah. How do you feel about a period? piece set in the early noughties so i wondered about that initially i mean was is that so that they could establish the 70s as their childhood i couldn't really understand why it was set then apart from they were leaning really really heavily into that hippie trope exactly i think that would be much (laughs) i feel like this was very kind of adjacent to the banger sisters (laughs) remember that film was the last film appearance of goldie horn before um she came back with snatched i'm a big fan of snatched amy schumer snatched um yeah, it felt like it's part of that. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like part of that kind of boomer hippie coming of age, mm. and kind a cr- of free spirit. A corollary to that is uh, is writing in Seattle Digest the most naughtiest profession ever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, that was interesting. The Seattle backdrop. It felt like I don't know quite why, but it felt like it really worked for the show. Mm. Maybe because I don't know. It just kind of seemed seemed the right fit for it, even though the show didn't make a huge amount of mm. it. Mm. Another question mm. for you. Mm. Is is this show a meta commentary on Catherine Heigl's own demotion from the A list? Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? it? It definitely felt like the. Um, I feel like we're getting to a very very gossipy podcast now, but it, it, it felt like the change in hairstyle and hair color signaled this as Catherine Heigl late work. It felt very <laughs> well, distinct. Particularly, her character is is a giant A list sure. Hollywood celebrity, super famous. Mm. Everyone who meets her says mm. that how much they love her. They fawn over her. They I gotta say, know, loud her, and I think to me at least, and she and she's she's uh, saying talking about hobnobbing with parties with yep. George Clooney and so sure. forth. Given her very infamous diva behaviour on mm. sets and subsequent demotion from the A list, is this an attempt really to desperately reclaim that status in a fictional form? It may be, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, it may be. <laughs> next, Look, yeah, go ahead. One next more. question. Yeah. Um, Johnny Ryan. Played by Ben Lawson, Josh Lawson's mm. Australian brother. Mm. <laughs> the mo- is Ugh. this the most cliched love interest down right down to the to the coloured, non-threatening sweater? I know. I, I just thought this series had so much that was going against it, and then when you introduce like a really authentic Aussie character, I was just like, he's oh, a war correspondent, oh, but he doesn't no. want to talk about it. I know, but just but also as as Australians, just that kind of laconic lackadaisical kind of larrikin-esque kind of sincerity i i just went here with an i was like i'm out <laughs> like pull the rip pull the rip cord <laughs> look i'm being a little bit scathing but i just you know i do think that lifetime television and hallmark television are really interesting i just felt there was something about this that was more basic and kind of a bit like kind of pretentious i just thought there was this constant zaniness and constant quirkiness that i don't know yeah i just wasn't that into it yeah what's the only thing you like after midnight in terms of in terms of food or television, <laughs> probably Golden Girls is my post midnight <laughs> post midnight hit. So look, I'm, I think this is red light for me. What do you think? <laughs> look, I think this is orange for me. You're not going to think... watch it. You're not going to watch it. You can you can you can play the reasonable man this, all you want. You're not going to watch it. No, look, I probably won't watch it. But I w- I will say that I found this 
enjoyably in a in a so bad it's good way. Okay. Yeah, I just I just I couldn't get into it. Okay, on to our next series for the Forget week. Forget it, Billy. It's Limetown. <laughs> nice. Um, this is an interesting series. It came out in 2019, but it's only just dropped in Australia um, mm. on SBS On Demand. It's based on a podcast, and it was originally um, broadcast on the Facebook Watch channel. And the basic premise of it is it follows a journalist, Lisa Haddock, played by Jessica Beale, um, as she investigates a disappearance of 300 people at a neuroscience research facility called Limetown. Um, it's a really interesting show. So the, fir- the premise basically outlines the nature of this community um, and the, the events that led to the disappearance. But what's interesting is it looks at it through the... Pers- like it, it feels very close to the original podcast. So mm, yeah. in a lot of ways, this feels like a series that hasn't fully made the transition from podcast to... Um, television series, which I thought worked really effectively at times, and other times wasn't so effective. It's, it's definitely an interesting kind mm. of hybrid text, isn't it? There is there is something I think quite intriguing and mysterious about the sort of hushed aura yes. of a podcast yep. that that actually does situate the text in or ground it in a weird way, and also give a quite nice personal voice. Absolutely, it's it's a way of uh, it, it could be used as lazy exposition, mm. but here it was actually pretty good at establishing a mood early on. I, I agree, and I mean, and to their credit, in the television in the television series, they don't just repeat the narration of the podcast, but they build. I mean, podcasts are an oral medium, as you said, like sound and the hush are so important. They build a whole suspenseful world around sound. Yes. So the show opens with a series of really dramatic, abrasive sounds. Um, and the main character describes her process of investigating this disappearance, which involved a member of her own family, her uncle, as involving brain noise. And from mm. there, it's just this constant sonic motif. So we meet her get, getting her voice ready for a broadcast. She does field recordings. She kind of records mm. abstract ambient sounds. That's quite quite eerie, I think. I think There's, that's really eerie. Yeah. The opening scene is is quite disorienting or yes. estranging. Yes. It's, it's one of those good... They starting you know in the middle of the action media race, mm. but it 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 has a good hook, and I found that yeah like, like you said, there's a mysterious banging on the door, yep, and you you only see it from the perspective of or from the you you're looking directly at um, Leah Haddock mm. who's the main character, and she's describing what's occurring on the other side of mm. the motel wall, which is the banging. And it is almost like someone in a in a podcast studio describing the outside world, absolutely. In some way, so it's almost like meta commentary. I I agree. And and she's she's holding a an object which I wasn't sure was a dictaphone with some some Mm. sort of other oral recording device. But it was it was it was a very intriguing opening that wouldn't have been out of place in quite a sort of sophisticated horror movie or psychological thriller. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean exactly. So the the she's a. She's, it's, she seems to be like a radio programmer, a radio yeah, presenter. Yeah, slash journalist. But, but effectively, she's a podcaster. Yeah. And she's creating a podcast. And Inc- Incidentally, there's a there's a real journalistic thread running through all of the series that we've looked true. at this week. That's true. Every single one involves journalists. In some kind are of often, way. Are often set, for example, the Limetown incident yeah. they talk about is in the, in the mid-noughties as mm. well. So for those conspiracy theorists who are looking you know, to unpack what's going on in the podcast this week, that's that may be an ankle, a thread for you to pull. I agree. And it's... When we get to Murphy Brown, we'll talk. It's, it's interesting because I think watching, we we actually ended up, for reasons we'll discuss. We ended up doing the reboot of Murphy Brown, and it's interesting in that 
to see how the trope of the newsroom has dated mm. and how it, it's very much of this era. Yes. But um, exactly. And I mean, something else interesting about this show, it's the first show we've done the podcast that is itself based on a podcast. Interesting, So, yes. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I was wondering about the genre of the genre of series based on podcasts. So have you seen or heard Homecoming? I've only seen the pilot. Because this, this is not unlike Homecoming in that it deals mm. with a specialist facility isolated from the rest of the world. I mean, it, it just seems like there's a certain kind of thriller that really suits a podcast. As you said, a thriller where hush is a really important part of it, but also where, I don't know, where the narrator is searching for testimony of some kind yes. or, you know, oral records like interviews procedures, stuff that's been recorded. Yes. And so the incident in question here that happened at Limetown, mm. and this is a fictional incident, I'm, yes. I'm yep. assuming, um, is a vanishing, a mysterious mm. vanishing of 300 people. Mm. And in some ways the podcast and the voice of the podcast fills in that, that absence, mm. that lack, that void but in it, some ways with the kind of hushed hushed tones of the narrator in some ways. She's sort of giving voice to these, to it, these it, mysterious... Uh, I suppose the, the vanished. As you said, though, I mean, I think almost what this focus on sound serves to do is to amplify the silence. Yes. Around, because in vanishing narratives, silence is usually a big trope. You know, there's people yes. who can't speak for themselves anymore. And yeah, just that scene, the field recording, where she's recording ambient noise, like you feel like the whole series is looking for something that's just sub-audible. Mm. Like she's always, I mean, I think it's it's kind of a, Procedural, like a forensic procedural in which she's continually scrutinising, monitoring or examining sound, mm. just trying to find the hint of something. And, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but you discover pretty quickly there's a huge cave network behind the town. Mm. And the way they discover that is because a staircase in a house echoes unusually. Yes. So there's this, the sound gradually, literally leads to something that's just beneath the mm. threshold of everyday perception. I think a real strength of this was its sense of space and yeah. the Lime Town, the village mm. or the model village built around the, the neuroscience facility is really well drawn. It's yep. a very atmospheric space. It's shot in a very atmospheric way, overcast, mm. grey tones. It, it almost evokes that the Chernobyl, the, the village Absolutely. next yeah. to Chernobyl in some ways, a kind of a kind of ruin in some ways. And the way it's described is a graveyard with no bodies. Mm. There's a really mysterious lack or void here. Yep. That recalls in some ways that there's kind of great horror movies where there's there's some the, sort of the mysterious what, the, what hap- the what happened here the what happened the here, what happened here yeah. it's funny like you know apart from that apart from that town the film I don't think is the series sorry I don't think is fully realised visually it doesn't quite completely make the transition from auditory to visual medium but I think that actually kind of works like for for a series it's about absence or about you know, a vanishing, the sense that things haven't quite crept into the visual field yet, things mm. haven't quite entered the realm of visibility, mm. is really haunting yes. and really eerie. So That's the tone it's going for, haunting. I mean, it's yeah. certainly, certainly a very downbeat, dour show in many respects. Yeah, it's like you can kind of just... You can sense... It's like the emphasis on sound allows you to really viscerally appreciate the silence left behind by these people but the the fact that it's not fully realized visually makes it impossible to conceive where they might have gone mm. it's it's mm. a really deft balance that at first i thought at first i thought you know didn't might not particularly work or might just feel like an adaptation of a podcast in a fairly straightforward way but actually it has you know it's a tv series which is sound driven and silence driven 
with occasional flashes of visuality that I think work really well. Yeah, I, I think my concern about this series is that it becomes it teeters on the ridiculous at times. So, can I can I ask yeah. you a question? That do, I mean, what did you think about the caves? So uh, the caves that stretch beneath the town. That's where it's speculated that this huge network of caves is where the people have gone. The caves are great. Were they a bit of a cheat, do you I think? Th- and in terms of the atmospherics as well, mm. they were a little bit, bit less... Hokey. Yeah, less... I suppose less evocative in some ways. And I, th- I feel just mm. the way that this plot is already being sketched out with a some mysterious Dr. Totem mm. and his sort of scientific utopian mm. project that there could be a... A kernel of ridiculousness to this show that could, could be, undermine its 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 tone in some ways as well. I, I feel, and there could also be a kind of expository quality, yes, a kind of inane expository quality. You know, a series of explanations at the centre of it that cut against that haunting, evocative silence. Yes, I know what you mean. It, it's very poised, isn't it? Like it's mm. it's the tone is so poised. It's it's paradoxical in that you almost don't want to find out anything more. You That's want, right. You want the series to continue withholding information yes. so that you don't... Yes. So it doesn't ruin that delicate balance and that yes. delicate atmosphere. I mean, in some ways you could watch this as a pilot, as a self-contained short, yeah. short film, and in some I, respects it does work. I agree. I mean, I, as thought, such. I thought it was kind of perfect in that sense. And, yeah, it... It has a sort of, like, I think an admirable brevity to it. It's only 30 minutes. Yes. And in this age of quite bloated, 50, yes. 55, even over an hour long uh, pilots, which I often don't think justify that runtime. Mm. This this does everything it needs to do. I agree. You know how like there's a certain kind of horror narrative that works really well as a kind of fragment? Mm. I just this, this, I think, works really well in that sense. Like it's almost all you see here is all you need yes. to kind of for the, to get the idea of it. Yes, and I, I'm worried about those caves. I mean, firstly, the caves feel like a deus ex magna to me. Like, everyone's vanished from a town. There's a giant network of caves underground. Yes. And secondly, I feel like the caves are so conventionally creepy, they cut against the more profound uncanniness of the town itself. Yes. And the, I also just had a bit of a plot point I couldn't quite get my head around. So that the plot is that, you know, at some point in Limetown's history, the town was just barricaded mm. and the local militia defended it. Then, like, after three days, they let people in the town was empty. Mm. Who were those local militia? Like, what, were they questioned? Like, what, they don't really... That was, that was quite uh, opaque to me. I, I, had, I was really unclear on that. Yeah, it's not a bad... No. But, but there, there are moments of opacity like it and that that just, I guess, just had me curious about mm. what... Perhaps this is, this is one of those ones where revisiting the original podcast would be... Well, this is, this is something I was wondering. Like, I, I kind of thought... Like, I wondered, I thought the story was incredible, but I wondered if the podcast was actually the way to do it. Mm. Like, and you know, I haven't listened to a lot of fictional podcasts. I'd be curious to try that out. No, as a, as a form and as a, as, a mm. narr- as a narrative device, the podcast format, I suppose, is the modern day... Like a serialised... Yeah, serialised novel in like, some ways. Like yeah. serial. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think, yeah, the podcast works well for stories that are kind of fragmentary or yes. incomplete. Like, it's almost like the podcast is good for kind of found footage narrative unreliable narrators yeah exactly like audio transmissions I can imagine this could be you know very scary as a podcast yes the kind of just that low level sub audible kind of hum that's going on the whole time and I wonder if that will be thematized like I wonder if the experiments on the people will have something to do with 
sound or with extrasensory perception or with the ability to hear somehow without using your ears. I mean, its sound is so foregone. I mean, you know, the the leader of the cult, you know, explicitly says, you know, I've heard the future. Mm. And that's the name of the episode too. Like, I think you know, I've heard the future. I've heard the future coming. So I, I wonder whether... I wonder whether the plot twist will revolve around some kind of sound surrogate or some kind of hearing surrogate, hearing without sound or hearing something beyond sound. It mm. feels like it's going that way. Interesting. I mean, we've almost talked about it for as long as the pilot actually went. I know, yeah. So for this, I think I'm, I'm a little mixed. I think this is an intriguing premise, mm. but I'm a bit concerned about the execution, the, the, the landing. I, I don't know whether it's going to stick the I landing. Right. I already feel like it's going to botch the landing. Yeah, and I think, you know, something that maybe indicates that too is that, you know, the the hook, the um, the emotional hook is that the main character, the Jessica Bill character, is trying to seek out her uncle who disappeared. Yes. He's played by Stanley, Stanley Tucci. Tucci. <laughs> now, Stanley Tucci can really, really ham it up. Yes. I think he can be very hammy in, in two different ways. He can be totally over-the-top hammy or he can be serious hammy. Yes. You know, when he does... When he does seriousness, it's always a little bit camp. So I actually I just, think this 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 role I think would have been better cast by an unknown actor. Yes, I agree. I think I agree. having someone that famous mm. in this role took away a little bit of the mystery, especially someone like Stanley Tucci, like you said, who can who's so commanding of the screen. Because you feel maybe yeah. you feel it's something he, they have to be recovered in some yeah. way if he's in it. He, he will not be vanished. <laughs> no, exactly. He's he's inimical to vanishing. And you know, Jessica Biel works well in that respect as well. Like she has a kind of. It, she has a kind of blandness, a yeah. kind of anonymity that works a, a, well in a brittleness procedural role. To, a brittleness to her, yeah, which I agree. works in this role. But also I think a kind of blankness. Like, yeah. I mean, have you seen The Sinner, for example? I have like, not seen So no. in that, it's about somebody who has kind of repressed memory loss. I mean, it works in a similar way. Like, she's good at flatness. Maybe yeah. bland, blandness is the wrong word. She's good at characters who are kind of flat or um, blank, but concealing something, as you said, brittle, yes. concealing something kind of volatile mm. in some way yeah she so. doesn't have a particularly strong screen presence no. or a particularly strong star image which works for a role like this yeah. where you need to blend into the background and, and another way putting it's like, observer and listener another way of putting that is you know as in, you know she's obviously very classically good looking but she's not she doesn't have a strong visual presence no. she doesn't have she's not particularly expressive in her facial expression no. she's not particularly extroverted in her body language so for a show that is she's the anti stanley tucci she's the anti stanley <laughs> tucci so for a show that is i guess you know that never fully constitutes itself visually mm. she works well definitely but yeah another way of putting it is when stanley tucci comes into the fray everything is going to be visualized <laughs> that's right everything is going to be visible so <laughs> it'll become bombastic exactly <laughs> even or especially if he tries to play it down stanley tucci can't yes. play it down <laughs> no he can't he can't he can't be a bit play he can't be a supporting character no so no Look, I think what I'll probably do is I think I'll watch one more episode and see how the land lies. And if I'm not feeling it, I'll probably go for the podcast. Really? Yeah. I don't think you come back for oats. <laughs> exactly, yeah. All right. Our next show. Billy, do you like true crime? I do. Do you like cults? I do. Do you like true crime about cults? I love it. And you know what? <laughs> Watching this, I was like, you know what the third part of that formula is? UFOs. Part of me is like... My obsession with true crime and with cults, I, why haven't I got into UFOs? Like UFO why, cults? Why haven't I got into extraterrestrial cults? Yeah. UFO cult, true crime. I know. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. This, this, this had, is Heaven's this Gate. This ticked all the buttons. And can I say, just to start off with, I, I, I didn't know what Heaven's Gate was. Like, for some reason, I thought Heaven's Gate was that Japanese cult, the subway. Oh, the um, Shinrikyo. Yeah, for some reason, cult. I thought that was Heaven's Gate. Oh, okay. So I, 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 yeah, I wasn't extra sure what Heaven's Gate referred to either. Yeah. I thought it might refer to a place. Yep. But um, you learn something new every day. You do, about, you, about cults. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a true crime fan, yep. this, was a major, yeah. this was a major blind spot for yep. me. I was familiar with 
with the story just in very, very vague outline. Yeah, yeah. But really, the main way I've actually approached this is through parodies. Yes. And I think True. in some ways the Heaven's Gate cult is the easiest to self-parody. Yeah. Because it, in some ways, it's the most inherently ridiculous. Well, that's one of the funny things about watching it, isn't it? Like at first, you know, you feel like the cult almost has to be benign because it is so. I mean, it is so ridiculous. Yes, and then and it's, it's, it's mantra a, is is yeah. is so. Uh, I suppose really not not very really invasive, not very controlling yeah. mantra. It seems like it's kind of allied with a lot of those well, those so, free spirited kind of hippie movements. Well, here's, here's something that's interesting about it. Like I think that you know something I didn't know was that it was a Christian millenarian cult and that it was, you know, inspired by the Book of Revelations. Mm. The two leaders, the two, base themselves upon figures in the Book of Revelation. Yes. So it was kind of eschatological in that sense. But unlike most millenarian cults and most cults based on, you know, Revelation eschatology, it's very chill. Yes. <laughs> like it's very laid back. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, I have I have a bit of a take on that, I'll tell you in a moment, but that, that's part of the paradox, right? You have this intensely Christian cult on the one hand that's obsessed with apocalypse. Yes. But on the other hand, there's no real hierarchy or structure. Yes. And it's just very, apart from, apart from the mass suicide, yes. apart from the mass suicide, it's very chilled out, very chillaxed. It's like a chillaxed millenarian cult. <laughs> <laughs> so just a bit of background yeah. about the series. It's told through the eyes of former, former members mm. and loved ones of former members, and it follows Heaven's Gate and... It's two founders, um, including the subsequent leader, Marshall Applewhite. <laughs> now, this, the, the, great, this particular great cult... Great name. That is, that is a great cult name, isn't it? <laughs> the, the cult was founded, was co- actually had two co-founders mm. who uh, were two. Marshall Applewhite. The two? The two. <laughs> Bo and Peep. Bo and Peep. Or T and Doe. Yep, T and Doe. Uh, probably the first cult to be named after... Um, sounds in the sound of music yeah well, well you know my kind of take on that i guess was like you know i, you know, I got the impression that both cult leaders were gay right so like mm. you know she had a very lesbian aesthetic and he seemed openly gay and my, my kind of sense was that the cult was their way of trying to reconcile their sexuality with their spirituality so i felt like this was kind of you know christianity or new age christianity mediated through a kind of queer aesthetic interesting because so, you know the sound of music is a big queer classic so i did not know that massively so it's a massive classic for gay men um sing-alongs all the time in sydney and you know, other places but it's also a cult classic for gay women because the nunnery is often seen as like and you know the whole thing is about maria kind of exploring her desire climb every mountain so you have this cult started by two kind of queer people, a kind of spiritual couple who, you know, don't just name themselves after characters in The Sound of Music, but they name themselves after the actual notes in The Sound of Music. Yes. Like Do and Me or whatever. So they're, yeah. they're like... They're T, like, T and Do. T and Do, sorry. T and Do. <laughs> but, you know, that's that song is the heart of The Sound of Music. It is literally The Sound of Music. So I, I kind of felt like it was almost like you had this... The cult was their way of trying to reconcile their queer sexuality with a kind of christian spirituality yes and do you notice like you know and it was also you know a form of christianity that wasn't all about repro futurity so did you did you kind of sense they really weren't into kids no (laughs) like like (laughs) or or really sex yeah exactly this this was i think really notable for a cult having control essentially of its members lives cutting Mm. them off from their families effectively doing everything that cults do in order to indoctrinate mm. their members but yet not exploiting them sexually and in fact promulgating like a very sexless yes uh lifestyle so think, and aesthetic exactly so i think like you know cults are often often involved male figures doubling down on a patriarchal 
kind of world order, whereas this kind of felt like the opposite. Like it felt like they were almost trying to dissociate Christianity from even monotheism. So instead of having the one, they had the two. Yes. And instead of having this kind of top-down patriarchal order and the cult, it was kind of the opposite. Like you had this loose, free living, but that was also sexless, wasn't about procreation or, you know, reproductive futurity, and was kind of bound up in this kind of almost Sound of Music cosplay. Like <laughs> I just thought it was like a really interesting... Yes. And the main guy in the cult, the documentary tells us, was openly gay and then... Mm kind of went back in the closet when he started the cult, but, you know, really deflected his energies into the cult. So I thought, yes. you know... And it, it was was quite open about his repression, in fact. And, absolutely. And there was a suggestion that his his loathing of his own his own sexual identity was the imprinted on the cult. Yes, exactly. And especially its its emphasis on living a very monastic life. So, like, one of my... You know, I'm going to name one of my favourite um, queer theorists, Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick, just drop Sedgwick, she has this idea that queerness produces what she calls, like, forms of shame consciousness. Mm. So ways of dealing with shame. And I kind of felt like, in a way, like, that's kind of what Heaven's Gate seemed like. It seemed like two people, openly queer, creating a kind of cult that instead of, you know... I guess doubling down on the patriarchal order as cults often do actually departed from it. Yes. Know? And it was literally about departing from Earth. Yes. So it's yes. it so, interesting. Yeah. I thought it was unusual in that sense. Yeah. I suppose just to fill in readers yeah, on sorry. the interesting backstory behind this cult and in particular their their theology mm. was that, and the way they initially marketed themselves mm. was that aliens would physically manifest themselves on Earth and take the cult members mm. to another planet which mm. they figured as being heaven so what was unusual about this cult was the actual physical manifestation at least yes. in the early stages of the cult of the divinity mm. and, and the also- physical departure from earth but what's interesting is as the cults developed and particularly with the passing of tea the cults this this actual departure from earth became more metaphorical, metaphorical yeah. and hence leading inevitably to the the mass Suicide. It was interesting, wasn't it? Because, you know, so often in that era, UFOs are framed in terms of abduction. Yes. Whereas here it was almost like a UFO was like a form of self-realisation. Yes. Like if you really want to be your best self, <laughs> check out UFO. I mean, something something I love about this, I mean, you know, I love a good cult story that's really focused on one place. So this reminded me, you know how in Wild Wild Country, it's just great to see that standoff between, um, was it like Rajnishpuram and Antelope, Oregon. Yes. So this is a lot of this takes place in a small town, um, Waldport, yes. Oregon. I, I read up on it, and apparently when um, Heaven's Gate, you know, proselytized in the town, one in thirty people left their homes and joined the cult. So the whole structure, you know, it's, it's really it's kind of cosmic, but also localized in a really fascinating way. I think what this pilot does really well is also explain why the, why this cult and its particular messianic message would have appealed to people in that time yeah absolutely and i think now the cult it's it's the easiest cult to really yes. parody isn't yeah. it in some ways especially because of all uh doe's messaging mm. um and his his weird sort of wide-eyed white-haired what? woolly and, appearance on and speaking on TV. of that like i mean the style was fascinating like it looked like it looked like two members. It was kind of sweet in a way. It was like two members of a cult that had explicitly modelled their look on Star Trek or yes. on 50s science fiction. Yes. I mean, all, it was just like they'd styled themselves after movie characters. Yes. Doe, in some ways, like represented a deranged Mr. Rogers figure. Yes, absolutely. So the way he dressed the camera. Absolutely. So I think one of the, I guess one of the strengths of this, rather than just it just being a, all about talking heads, was just mm. the incredible amount of archival footage. Yes. Especially that, that Doe recorded. So. Yeah. Doe was basically recording this to broadcast to his followers, but also they cre- they were 
buying up airtime on mm. a TV network mm. for hours. So they have mm. hours of the footage of the court, the cults proselytizing on these on TV networks. So and for for a, yeah. for a cult that's all about communication with outer space. Yes. There was something about seeing those transmissions now yes. that felt quite uncanny yes. and felt quite... I mean, it's funny. I mean, it's so right what you've said. Like, I mean, this is the first time watching a cult documentary. I was like, you know, I really get it. Like, I get mm. the yearning for some kind of spiritual mm. transcendence. Like, maybe because the cult wasn't exploited even the way a cult normally is, mm. apart from the mass suicide. Yeah. You, you felt a little bit more licensed to, to get inside the mindset of the mm. people who joined it. Mm. And you could see how all the pieces were in place, like mm. the kind of wandering 70s sensibility, mm. the new age spirituality. It was interesting. I mean, it was interesting how Christianity was a part of it. I had no yes. sense that they considered themselves a Christian. Yes. But what they were kind of trying to do in that sense had a kind of nobility to it. Like they were trying to take Christianity and, and effectively make it relevant. Like, I mean, yes. it, it was like the first generation who grew up with the space race. Yes. The space age generation trying to come to terms with organized religion yes it was, it was in, like it was interesting philosophically yeah. what uh, they were doing and marshall applewhite's doe's <laughs> doe's father was like a really stern strict yeah. presbyterian minister yes, so exactly. in some ways he was trying to reconcile modern scientific advancement with his own religious upbringing and his own sexuality and his own sexuality yeah. his own repressed sexuality mm. so it was an unusual amalgam of things the other thing that really surprised me mm. here was the the longevity of this cult so mm. especially the lead time between its its inauguration mm. in the mid-70s mm. and the mass suicide event in the late 90s. Mm. So really the cult members here had had 20 years mm. of sustained indoctrination, which really explained why they might have taken such a radical step. It almost feels like the cult itself is coterminous with the great era of UFO conspiracies. Yes. Like, you know, the rise of UFO conspiracies in the 70s. And in some ways it was appropriate they had they had to end this cult before the year 2000. Before the two, exactly, were millenarian, yes. exactly. But also there's a time in the, in the... Something about the 90s when conspiracy theories were starting to lose some of their power or they were they were starting to migrate into a more digital kind of space, you know, into kind of online conspiracy. Like the kind of the cult as a venue for conspiracy theory was probably starting to wane then. So just something about it, it was like watching the history of ufology yes. <laughs> in, in miniature or through the group through the lens of one group of people that was really... It's kind of funny, like, you know, I think I'm fascinated by extraterrestrial stuff and UFOs, but I'm also just fascinated by the cultural history of it, mm. like understanding, you know, the imagery, the iconography, why it, you know, why it took the forms it did, you know... You could kind of see here, like, you know, I'm not going to go into detail, but, you know, the stuff about aliens and probes, for example. Like, you, yes. can see it, you could read it interestingly in terms of UFOs being about a place where repressed desires or repressed tendencies can be safely articulated. Yes. It's interesting. Yeah. Like, this was this kind of made me think about that in a whole new way and just get really interested in the history of UFOlogy as much as whether or not it's factual. Definitely. Yeah. So I think for me... Well, oh, let's be honest. I finished this. Okay, right. I, I've only seen. I see. I, I only got to this one today, so I've only seen the pilot recently. How, how many episodes are there? Only four. Only okay. four. So it's quite a. It's a tight four four episode mm. run, and each episode focuses on pivotal moments in the cult's evolution. The, and really, mm. like you, the cult does not really become your classic controlling no. mind control yes. type cult until the very the, the very last stages mm. when. The vocabulary starts shifting, and one of the the, the points that this uh, documentary underscores is the way that cults use language, linguistic programming, and in mm. particular euphemisms, yes, um, or at least language displacement yep. for, uh, I guess, justifying or instrumentalizing 
their their purposes. Their so, for example, the cult yep. here, they they start describing their physical bodies as vehicles. Yes. And and at the end, uh, Marshall Applewhite says, "My vehicle's breaking down." Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> great. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like as we saw with the Nexium stuff. Um, every great cult documentary. Yeah, I think the mark of one of the marks of a great cult documentary is having a real taste for the lexicon of the cult. Yes, and this 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 got it to me. Like, I mean, I, just, I know down some of the words you got. You, got, you obviously have T and Do. The two you have the next level. Yes, the, the demonstration, <laughs> and also just the ceremonies like the tuning forks. Yes, but yes. It, it was funny. Like it was like it was like most cults are like kind of monstrous patriarchy this was kind of like a queer hippie collective yes like all tuning forks and demonstrations yes. rather. and one of the suggestions in the later episodes is that the radicalization that occurred in this cult mm. might have not actually been driven by the leaders by so the much as such as like particularly zealous members so ones, within who were vying for yeah for i guess social power the within the group the twos. yeah within yeah. the community so one final question i had about this i mean i, I was amazed there was is there a film i was amazed there was no film about it. i was kind of thinking like there must be a whole i think there's a lot of films film, that are kind of indirectly influenced by it i think a lot of cult horror is very influenced yeah, right. by this okay. in particular i think yeah I, I think all, like, the, all the parodies drink the cordial and yeah, so yeah. forth um it's i think you have a kind of cultural familiarity with yeah, this with this I mean. narrative with this story i was trying to think though like there's no there's no seminal depiction yeah. of this partly because i think there's nothing really horrific about no. the end of this unlike for example jonestown yeah it's not kind of spectacle driven isn't yeah. it in the same way i just kind of thought you know there must be and maybe because it lasted so long as well yes. like it, it wasn't it wasn't really associated with any one event apart from the mass suicide but by that point the UFO moment had kind of passed. Yeah. So there was something belated about yeah. that. Yeah. This series certainly doesn't go for the, the cliffhanger approach. It goes. Yeah. It's much more interested in a cult, the cult as a kind of cultural phenomenon yeah. and mm. explaining it as something that, that would have been appealing to members at the time. Mm. So to me at least there's a bit of cultural history. This, yeah, this really worked. Like I said, yeah, that's what interests me, the cultural UFO history. So look, yeah, I'm, I'm an into. I'm going to finish it. Okay, on to this week's Archive Corner, and we have a bit of a, an interesting situation this week. So whenever Drew and I, you know, look up our archive choices, we always try and do our due diligence and make sure that the series are available. And it's surprising, Drew, isn't it, how many are not available? An incredible amount. So, a huge blind spot. So when it came to Murphy Brown this week, I looked up on our user website, Just Watch, and it said it was available on, I think, three different platforms, like 10 Play, Google Play, Apple TV+, and it was available on all those platforms. But just the, the rebooted season, I think the 2017, 2018 reboot. And I started to look, you know, so I was really surprised that, you know, I was surprised that Murphy Brown wasn't available in Australia because it's such a, you know, canonical show. But I was doubly surprised that the reboot was available and not the original. And I kind of looked into it. And apparently Murphy Brown is a real blind spot when it comes to availability. And there's a lot written about this. And you know, there are two main reasons for it, apparently. Firstly, because of the the nature of its production so i think cbs produced it but fox screened it or something like that there's some you know complication but secondly the show is really heavily uses motown so many of the opening sequences no single opening credits you know credits you know piece of credit music so often it opens with a motown song and it also features motown songs in really like pivotal moments so apparently the pilot has an iconic scene where um Murphy sings, you make me feel like a natural woman. So, you know, the show is kind of inconceivable without that Motown accompaniment, which means that um, 
apparently like it's not available to stream on any mm. platforms and only the for what i read only the first season was ever released on dvd mm. and that's out of print so mm. it's 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 kind of lost to time they didn't really learn their learn from their mistakes about you know the expensive licensing because this reboot starts with a rolling stone song exactly yeah so i wonder what's changed you know it kind of seems strange i mean a show like this would be so profitable when there must be so many people i mean the fact that they made a reboot indicates that people want to watch it Mm. and fascinatingly apparently even when the reboot was airing in the united states and australia even then the original wasn't available to stream so there's no way to contextualize it so people just must must have had a vague cultural memory of murphy brown in their life memory so it's one of those weird situations where you have a kind of deadlock around availability and we get it a lot in Australia you know especially with older films where you know the deadlock and the bureaucracy doesn't do anyone any good like you know we can't watch it and the people who own it can't make money from it so with that all in mind we've taken a little bit of a of a different approach and we're actually reviewing the reboot which mm. I think is actually you know, legitimate because it's the only version of Murphy Brown. Yes. I mean, like I said, I think it's, you know, it's not even available on DVD. So this is genuinely, it's not on YouTube. This is genuinely a show that is, at the moment, lost to time. So, look, watching the reboot without having seen the original series in some time and only having watched the original series as reruns impressionistically was a pretty uncanny experience. Mm. But, but, but t- that, taking that, you know, on its, you know, taking that, that as it is... What did you think, Drew, of the reboot, like on its own terms? Like it's, you know, it's obviously part of a pattern of a whole lot of TV shows and comedies returning. Uh, Will and Grace, apparently Frasier has been rebooted. Do you think they'll do Seinfeld? No, they can't. They can't. They can't do that. And in a way, Curb has taken, Curb Your Enthusiasm has taken care of that, hasn't it, with the Seinfeld reunion. But, you know, these 90s, Mad About You came back. So, you know, these shows are all returning. What did you think of this particular iteration of that 90s reboot moment? Well, I think there's a series of, texts that were rebooted in line with the trump absolutely and i think the the one the most notable one i think is roseanne roseanne being rebooted in line with the general project to understand the trump vote absolutely the white republican from middle america that commercial tv had lost touch with and that's probably the most successful one too isn't it like i thought that that was a reboot that felt you know if not vital all the time it felt it felt very plausible to see the characters again in this new scenario. That felt engaged yep. in a way that that was that was interesting. It was mm. an interesting I agree. interesting experiment, I think, that, that particular mm, series totally. before Roseanne became too much of a Republican. Well, then and then actually the Connors, <laughs> wore her racism on, the Connors, yeah. on her sleeve. Same thing, isn't it? I mean the show itself is so is so symptomatic of the Trump era of yeah, just something about that turn of it setting out to critique the Trump era then suddenly discovering it's complicit in the Trump era. It doesn't have the critical distance that it initially <laughs> yes, thought right. that it did. <laughs> so viewers couldn't couldn't maintain that, that necessary thought, critical uh, distance or comfort. I felt from... mixed about that, by the way. Like, I kind of felt like I can understand why they wanted to take Roseanne off, but I think they should have just taken the show off. I mean, I think mm. having the show without Roseanne, the Connors, yeah. it's a bit of a slap in the face. Just yeah. get rid of the show or don't. Yeah. But, you know, anyway. So, yeah. but what, what do you think about this? Because this is very... Trump. This. <laughs> well, this well to me at least, I'm not sure exactly what the original Murphy Brown mm. was like or what sort of universe it inhabited. Mm. Whether every single joke and every single punchline was completely was it was topical. Mm. Whether the, its whole premise was topicality. Mm. Uh, blah blah blah. Archbishop 
Desmond Tutu. Yeah, yeah. Family <laughs> Guy parody. I mean, this whole pilot is basically blah, 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 Donald Trump, blah, 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 Watergate Hotel, blah, yeah, yeah. blah, 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 Pussy blah, March. Mike you know? Pence. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I, mean, I do remember the original series being like that, and I wonder whether there's something, because we're talking, you know, just to take up the thread of the podcast, you, you were talking about how all the shows involve journalism. Mm. I mean, this, it seems to me that Murphy Brown epitomises a kind of 90s centrism. So it's ironic, it's arch, it's knowing but it still fundamentally believes in the system. Mm. So you know, the, the media system, it's a bit like West Wing. So West mm. Wing is kind of, it's full of flourishes and irony and flamboyant kind of archness, but at the end, it's affirming the system. So mm. there's something about that kind of register, that 90s kind of centrism that can be quite smug. Mm. And I think at the time it was so naturalised and in some ways so original to have that kind of topicality, that kind of messaging that you kind of took it for granted. I think it also, it's about media. So, you know, this is a time when television is the very cutting edge of media, television mm. news. There's nothing more of the moment than television news. So, you know, a show that's about television news can afford to be a bit on the nose like that mm. and get away with it. And I just felt that so much has changed in media since that time. And the political landscape has shifted so much that you know the murphy brown formula which i remember watching it after school like i found quite titillating now I kind of felt a bit stale and, oh, and, and a bit and a yeah. bit and a bit geriatric this I mean, is a really tough watch to me at least this felt like a time capsule yep. of you know a period we might call as trump derangement syndrome yep. there's a there's a hysteria to this particular reboot which is which is really bizarre like it's 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 so caught up in its own little political point scoring that there's really no sense of a universe outside of it every single supporting character mm. exists as a kind of cardboard cut out to you, to make some sort of political did point you, want, you wanted more of the pro-trump view <laughs> no, i'm just joking no no i totally get you. no i just wanted a universe outside of like no no I totally, people taking pot shots at donald trump i totally get you i mean you know you've got to do i mean donald trump is ridiculous and monstrous but you know if a sitcom you've got to do more than just say his name yes i mean that's the whole thing and i, and I wondered you know it's funny, isn't it? Like, you know, growing up, you know, I really loved Woody Allen when I was kind of growing up. And I've often tried to figure out why. And I think, you know, maybe it's a 90s thing, maybe it's an adolescent thing. But at that moment, there was something so liberating about name dropping. Like, mm. there's something about name dropping when you're young and name dropping at that time where you couldn't just stream everything that gave you a sense of a networked world beyond your own kind of immediate vicinity. So mm. I remember really liking the name dropping of Murphy Brown. I felt there was something so, you know, powerful and exciting about all these references being thrown away around. And it's kind of returned to that name dropping humour, but in a way that just doesn't make sense in an age of Twitter, an age of connectivity, mm. that kind of name dropping and just kind of just name checking yes. comedic style, yes. I think doesn't, I mean, it's very, I mean, it's geriatric. The yeah. style of it, like it's just also, it's, it's wooden. It's so wooden. Who is this appealing to? Because it's it's political uh, satire is incredibly incredibly one dimensional. It doesn't make any interesting political points. No. It's like you say, its whole sense of humour is basically name checking in a very mm. very rudimentary Sorry. way. I, I was just wondering, like, I mean, this surely is not for liberal elites who would who would find this just completely basic in some ways, but it's. It can't be for middle America either because it's so, it's so caught mm. up in its own anti-Trump kind of hysteria. So it is. It's, it's a strange space. I mean, it. It's it's a weird. Like it reminds me a little bit of you know. Like I think I've told you. Like my take on kind of cancel culture is that cancel culture is, it's partly an anxiety on the part of journalists that 
at print media especially not occupying the voice of authority the voice of reason it once did so this is this is the kind of show you can kind of see what it seems like it's going for is it's it's trying to appeal to people on both sides of the aisle the political aisle who are oh, certainly not republicans <laughs> well well, it's funny though, isn't I mean, it? There's a cameo from Hillary Clinton. Yeah, well, certain. Yeah, well, to- totally. Of course, at some level, totally. But you feel like it's it is appealing to Republicans who want to think of Donald Trump as an anomaly. Like there's a sizable proportions of Republicans who are like reasonable man Republicans, Republicans who want to think it's possible to be a Republican without being continuous with Trump in some way. Like I just felt all those jokes. This is. You know, the character is always joking about the bar being like a place where people can shake hands across the aisle. I kind of feel like in the day, although it's kind of a Democrat show, it's kind of a left-leaning show, and it, it is it was radical, there's something more centrist about its sensibility. So I, I just wondered whether it was kind of... The gesture is kind of using Trump as an example of why Republicans and Democrats should meet in a kind of moderate center or something like that yeah i think that's true i mean yeah. it's it's but not I, I get what you're saying i mean who i mean also like who finds this funny yes like it's oh, not wow. it's not it's not funny i think geriatric is certainly the word the way the way the jokes are staged set up and the punchlines telegraphed at times had me thinking is this a show for like in like second english second language learners or mm. something or and look it, if, if it feels a bit mean spirit of us to just lay into it you know when the original is so iconic I mean, message to the creators, this shouldn't be the legacy. No. Like, this should not be the legacy of Murphy Brown. It's perverse that the only place, this is the only form of Murphy Brown you can access. Yeah, I mean, what, it, a, what, a, what a clapped out version. I know, yeah. <laughs> one, one thing I did enjoy was that Murphy Brown obviously uh, has an incredible, hus- wonderful huskiness to her. Oh, Almost yeah. like she spent, oh, the last, yeah. <laughs> she spent the last 30 years just drinking nothing but bourbon. But, but also, it made <laughs> She's me, pickled. It made me, it's like, you know, I've... I've I've always loved Candace Bergen's presence. I was really looking forward to seeing her, and you know, you could even see even this very impoverished version of the show. Like you can see that she has real presence in the character. I just look. My takeaway is like it's this is this was this, pre- is, this is yeah. It's it's dangerously close to self parody, isn't it? Yeah, and it's just such a pity. This is the only Murphy. Also, like you know, as a gay person myself, can we just stop doing reboots in which like we just have token sassy gay guys like it's like it's, it's, it's just such it's such a thing it's such a token thing it's like how about you just work on getting the jokes right and then you can bring in the sassy gay guy to show that you're like well, be funny i think this this show is definitely like work work on the jokes then put in the comedy yeah exactly and then then put in the kind of yeah exactly yeah. like and then, then put, put in, in the poli- the political satire i should yeah, say yeah exactly because i mean just basically it ain't funny at a fundamental level this show is painfully unfunny basic comic timing um, really basic comic timing. So, so Murphy Brown, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of you know, it's kind of sad. I mean, like, you know, the canned laughter is kind of half-hearted, and there's all these there's all these kind of applause, you know, bursts of applause when new people come in that you know are obviously beloved characters. I just think, yeah, my takeaway is that this should not be the only season of this iconic show that's available on streaming. Yes, and, and I the, think it's totally right. The creators of the show and the producers need to get their act together. And yes. it's, it's, it's obviously an iconic show. Interestingly. It's lost the, to history yeah. if it doesn't. Interestingly, this reboot is only 13 episodes long. Yes. Um, is that because it was cancelled? I think it was cancelled. I think, yeah. But I'm, I don't think it was just ratings. I was reading about there was a whole spate of shows that were cancelled around okay. the same time. But how could it be anything other than cancelled after I agree. You know, seeing that reboot? I, I mean, who, who watches that and says, I want, my, I I want another 12 episodes of like you know 
in, insufferable, constant trumpet. Yeah, and look, you know, it's it's grating. Yes, you know, it's just grating. It's like grating, name checking. So look, I, I went out too, and look, I'm I'm really, I it's just inconceivable to me yeah. that it's not available to stream. Free, free the uh, the original Murphy Brown, like free, free the, the Snyder original, cut, exactly. Free the Murphy free cut. Free the Murphy cut. <laughs> and so on that note, what um. What's your pilot club for next week, man? Your archive choice. Yeah. So you know how I love prison. Oh, you love it. There's nothing you love more. <laughs> Do you like breaks? Well, I like prison movies. Absolutely. I'm also in on prison break movies. Right. So can you predict which TV show we might be watching? Prison Break? We sure are. Fantastic. So that, that, that was a show that... Um, it's funny. That's a show I associate with a kind of early dawning apprehension of quality television. Yes. So like the same period as like, uh, like Alias, Desperate Housewives, Lost, 24, yes. that kind of period. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the old school quality yeah. television. Yeah, yeah. There was, yeah, still stra- still broadcast on network TV, mm. dispersed with ads. In fact, I think I might have watched the first couple of episodes of Prison Break and then didn't get any further. How, how 2003 is this? Because the DVD at my local video store was scratched. <laughs> I don't remember That's much a very about 2003 it. Flashback. I don't remember, except that there's like tattoos on a body. It's like the key to escaping the prison is tattooed I haven't on seen someone's it. body. Okay, yeah. I've news, seen. news to me. I'm okay. completely, completely blank on this. Which there's as... quite a big gay fandom around it. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Because the main character is like a kind of jocker who came out during the, the screening, so it became in the I think the gay community and generally it became a kind of touchstone in defying stereotypes. Okay, so interesting. Well, I he, guess he a lot broke of... out of the prison of the closet. Ah. I'm going to read it as a closet allegory. I haven't seen it. I'm going to read it as being about the closet. <laughs> well, it seems like there's a lot of a lot of prison. The prison genre is partly about exploring the closet, same sex relationships. Yes, exactly. Um, We're looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. So, so that is my my love of the prison genre. Will it extend? To the televisual form. That's really interesting, and it's because I mean we're going to wrap it up in a sec, but you know I, I never saw Oz either. Like no. so, like the prison no. prison television series, or I've never seen really Wentworth. I've never seen mm. yeah. That, that, that's a whole area of television I don't know that much about. Yeah, so that that's it. Cool. Prison Break could be the start of a whole series of prison shows. Maybe, maybe like okay. your love for the sitcom. Exactly. Well, it's looking forward to it. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>